You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And this morning we're looking at chapter 1. You'll find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. We're going to focus our attention on verse 4, but we'll read together verses 1 through 4. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. We found previously that without preparation, explanation, or warning, God commissioned Jonah for this mission. He was to warn Nineveh and preach repentance to its inhabitants. And according to verse 2, it was a great city whose evil had risen against God. But the prophet disobeyed and God called him east. Jonah went west. He boarded a ship for Tarshish, which was thousands of miles away on the coast of Spain. And his sense of Jewish superiority was offended by this mission to Nineveh. He knew the Lord was gracious. He understood that the Lord is merciful, that he delights in showing mercy. And for that reason, Jonah realized that it was highly likely that the Ninevites would be spared. The prophet could not bear the thought of the sworn enemies of Israel getting off like that. He enjoyed God's grace for himself, but he didn't want that grace extended to others. And as the story unfolds in verse 4, God begins to deal with his recalcitrant prophet. And his aim in doing so was to bring this believing Jew to fresh repentance and obedience. So Jonah would be allowed to go only so far. He boarded the ship, he set sail, they headed for the port. And there was no immediate intervention. Jonah was given a long leash, apparently. He thought he just might get away with it, but it would not be for long. Because you and I live in a moral universe. It's a universe in which it is still true that a man's sin will find him out. 
The hound of heaven would hunt down Jonah and teach him a valuable lesson. And there is no art or skill, there is no method or technique that that can confuse God. You can't bribe him. You can't blind him. There is no loophole. You can't escape him. And this is especially true of his beloved children whom he disciplines. What parent among you would let his or her child do whatever he wants? It's a silly question, I think. Would you let him run into the street? Would you allow her to touch a hot stove? Would you let him eat to eat only candy all day long? And if you did that, I think it would be hard for any of us to consider you a real parent. Out of love for the child, you guide and you govern and you faithfully discipline to the best of your ability. And the Lord is no different. He faithfully trains and he disciplines his children. And we see that in practice as Jonah took his voyage on the Mediterranean. And there are three things of which I want us to take note in this passage. The first thing to notice in verse 4 is the cause of the trouble or the storm's author. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So this was no coincidence. It came by the hand of God's providence. That is to say, it's not ultimately nature that bears down, but it's the Lord himself. Because all things are God's servants, even the elements of the natural world. Hurricanes, tornadoes, and so forth. He is the living and personal God who superintends every aspect of this universe. Consider Psalm 107, which refers to a storm at sea whipped up by the Lord himself. And in verse 25, it says, He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. And that psalm goes on to praise God for his wonderful works of providence. And so here he brings this mighty tempest that rocked the ship in which Jonah was sailing. Unbelief doesn't see it. The atheist cannot perceive that. He's blind to it. But the eye of faith sees it. The renewed heart truly recognizes the hand of God. And that's what makes the divide between the two great groups of people, isn't it? Saving faith distinguishes between the sheep and the goats, between saints and sinners. We all sin, but it's faith that makes the distinction. And in that sense, faith separates us and puts us into his kingdom and enables us to see the hand of God at work. The Christian is able to understand God's word and to recognize God's imprint on everything that he's made. He enjoys the privilege of observing and meditating on and rejoicing in God's works. And doesn't it gladden the heart to be able to appreciate God's handiwork? He made this place. The unbeliever may appreciate a scenic view. Hikes to the top of the mountain, looks over the vista, appreciates the beauty. But it's only the believer who can appreciate the author. It's a little bit like the difference between appreciating a painting and really knowing the artist. How blessed is the one who's able to see God controlling every particle of the universe 
And part of a Christian's wonder, I think, is watching the Lord work all things together for good. It's one of our most valuable blessings to have eyes to see and ears to hear, isn't it? We see God's fingerprints on all that he's made, and we hear God's voice in the thunder. And there are not, these are not just scientific facts, but they're works of the living God. And the psalmist tells us in Psalm 111, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. There's the storm. That's God at work. And he ordered things to bring Jonah to his senses and to repentance, and he was the storm's author, a wise heavenly father training his child. That's the first thing. But the second thing for us to notice is the storm's design or its purpose. That mighty tempest God hurled was not a mere afternoon shower. He threw a gale so massive and furious that even seasoned sailors became terrified. And as verse 5 makes plain, their reaction to this storm was nothing short of panic. It was a monstrous squall aimed at grabbing Jonah's attention and reorienting his thinking. And it was not accidental. There are no accidents, as a matter of fact, in God's economy. Sometimes the force of nature can do what no teacher could do. It would awaken Jonah from both a physical sleep and a spiritual sleep. And apart from Jonah, we have no reason to think that there would have been a storm. The hound of heaven was on the hunt. He was pursuing the fugitive prophet, and the storm was simply God's deputy sent to arrest Jonah's progress. And what a graphic reminder of divine power, that God is the Almighty, and that he is able and willing to employ his power for the sake of his children. If he has to move mountains to preserve them, he'll do it. And if he needs to bring a storm to chastise them, he's ready and willing. Jonah faced a literal storm at sea, and oftentimes you and I face figurative storms in life, don't we? They can come in all shapes and sizes. They can vary in degrees of intensity. And God's aim is to make his children more holy by purging sin's corruption. In Isaiah 48, he says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. And so here we find that God uses difficulties and hardships and disappointments to sanctify us or to make us more holy. That's his aim. Afflictions can be called sanctified if they purge the heart from its sin and promote holiness. God uses them to vanquish sinful pride and make us more humble. By contrast, it makes no difference how long the unbeliever is in the furnace of affliction. It makes no difference. The dross of sin and the vice of pride will remain as strong as ever. It's in every one of us. But afflictions will bring the Christian to the afflictions will bring the Christian to see no beauty and no taste, no relish in the world. It loses its luster. 
They make us more serious and more humble and more heavenly than we were before. Richard Sibbs has this saying, and I love the way he said it. Let me see if you agree with him. Let a Christian be but two or three years without an affliction, and he is almost good for nothing. That's a Puritan for you. (laughs) Because in the midst of affliction, we feel the pain and we can scarcely see the benefit. But in review, or as Elder Van Drunen likes to say, in the rearview mirror, we discover that God has wisely ordered it out of love and mercy. It does its work. Eliphaz was right. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. And if you experience it as a Christian, don't think for a moment that it's coincidence. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You know that. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If our father afflicts his child, he does so only because it's necessary. And yet often when you and I are afflicted, we think that he doesn't love us. That somehow he's forsaken us. Insofar as Israel was afflicted, her people lamented God's treatment. Listen to what Israel said. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Isn't that the temptation? Are we not tempted to question his love in the midst of our afflictions? But simply because he hides his face behind a cloud, he has not left you. He's merely treating you as his beloved children. He says, and I quote Isaiah 49, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, he says, yet I will not forget you. You know, the sun still shines in cloudy weather. We have a lot of cloudy weather here. Even when you can't see it, it's shining. Isaiah 50 says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness, you can't see it. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. I would think that a very first time visitor to Ohio in winter might think that all these trees are just barren but they've just lost their leaves for a season. In spring, you and I both know they're gonna leaf out again. And though we can't find leaves in December, they'll be everywhere in June. So it's unwise for you and I to draw conclusions from the first glance or our present experience. Just because I may not sense God's love today doesn't mean that he doesn't love me forever. His word tells me He loves me no matter what. My experience of trials cannot disprove his truth. And we have no more reason to question God's promise than his providence. We have no more reason to question his grace than his justice. He not only judges, but he rewards. He not only destroys, but he preserves. 
And he's faithful to bless his children as he is to curse his enemies. So let's you and I divest ourselves of all distrust with regard to God's love. Experience and feelings, as we have said so often, they're important. Experience and feelings are God-given, but they're no sure guide to interpreting the Lord. The only sure way is to base our judgments on his own testimony. And he says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And he pities us when we're weak. And he pities us when we sin. He pities us when we fall and we go astray. And when he, we come and confess, he forgives us and he accepts us in Christ. He knows the weakness of our bodies. He knows it. He knows the foolishness that's inbred in our souls. And the reason for his forbearance, why does he do this? Well, because of his infinite goodness and his love. I don't understand it. I'm impatient with myself and probably with you. But he's not. You and I have trouble bearing with other sinners, don't we? But God labors under no such weakness. He's good and he's long-suffering. And I think this should check every inclination to pride and give us the deepest comfort of all. He'll never give up on you. But the third thing for you and I to notice in verse 4 is the storm's effect, or its fruit. It says, there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So this ship is on the brink of destruction. They were on the verge of sinking. And Jonah's refusal to preach in Nineveh had potentially devastating effects. The consequences of his disobedience posed a threat to himself and others. I hope you saw that. Because you and I never sin in a vacuum. The storm was for Jonah, but the sailors were affected. Our culture claims that individuals should be allowed to sin as they please. What we do with our own lives and in our own conduct is no business of yours. But Jonah's experience teaches that this is anything but the truth. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, asks his readers to imagine that you and I are a fleet of ships in formation. And for the voyage to be successful, at least three things are necessary, according to C.S. Lewis. First, the ships must stay out of each other's way. They can't collide. Second, the individual ships must be seaworthy, all sailing in proper order. And third, the entire fleet of ships must be on and stay on its proper course. So for a successful journey, those three things have to be in place. If they, end, if they aim for New York and end up in Calcutta, it's something's wrong. And he says that people usually focus on the first thing, stay out of each other's way. As long as I, what I do doesn't harm anybody else, what difference does it make? It can't be wrong. In other words, as long as my ship stays out of your way, it's okay. But if the ship is not seaworthy, if you've damaged and ruined the ship, 
Well, it'll have an effect on other ships. If my ship is broken, it's going to collide and cause problems to other ships. And so God will often chastise his children to make you and I more seaworthy, so to speak. He'll discipline and he'll afflict us in the harbor to keep us from sinking at sea. And I tell you, it is no blessing to be spared the chastising discipline of God's rod. That would be to go without the blessed fruits that accompany it. Isn't this what it says in Psalm 94? Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Do you know who we should pity? We should pity those on whom God refuses to spend his time disciplining them. In their case, he has declared, in effect, those most frightening words. Leave them alone. No matter what they experience in life from that time forward, their condition is truly miserable. I don't care how much money they have, how much pleasure they enjoy, where they are in place of society. If God says, leave them alone, they're most miserable. Far better is the Lord's afflicting mercy than his sparing severity. My hero John Flavel says, better is the condition of an afflicted child than of a rejected bastard. And I think he's right. Let us feel the father's rod now, then suffer the judge's wrath later. And there are great benefits to enjoy from the fatherly discipline of the Lord. He's promised to prepare us for life in the heavenly realm. That's where we're heading. To do that, he's going to continue the process of refining you, reforming you and me. Because even the best of Christians need to be disciplined by the Lord. And killing sin is difficult work, isn't it? It's impossible work without the help of the Holy Spirit. So he will sanctify our afflictions so as to more fully sanctify our souls. And that's why David says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So deep and so intense are our desires for this world that they require afflictions, hardships, difficulties, disappointments. And our Father, thank God, will use them to purge the heart of its carnal attachment. He'll expose the weaknesses to humble the pride. You see, if we never went astray, there'd be no need for sanctifying afflictions. But let's face it, neither you nor me nor anybody else, by any grace received in this life, can keep the law of God. We can't. We won't. We daily break God's command in both thought, word, and deed, so we need the pride to be humbled by hardship. And you and I may grow weary of our afflictions. It's not easy to suffer under the rod. But of course, if God should remove them, for all we know, we'd go astray. So if the corruptions of the heart can be mortified by the afflictions of the body, so be it. Let them come. It's good if the pain of the body serves the peace of the mind and the holiness of the heart. So let me conclude by making a couple observations. 
I think we should be thankful to God for the way he disciplines and sanctifies his children, obviously on the surface. Because we're prone to wander, as the hymnist tells us, we're disposed to walk away and we're liable to transgress. And that's who we are by nature. You and I struggle with inbred sinful desires. And anybody who denies that denies the word of God. Jonah neglected his duty. He fell into sin. He departed from what is right. And thus in his life, as in ours, hardship and affliction became a stern teacher. But it served to recall him from his wanderings and to turn him back to the path of duty. And so it is with you and me. And he who values the benefit of such afflictions can bless the Lord for what he sends. Again, Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, he said this. It's better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. He's right. Secondly, let's appreciate the privilege of suffering afflictions for the sake of Christ. Philippians 3, notice what Paul says. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. He doesn't mean that Christ's sufferings are insufficient. When Jesus died on that cross, he said emphatically, it's finished, done, completed. Salvation is accomplished, and that's good news to sinners. Paul wished to be identified with Christ, who was a man of sorrows. He wanted to be like his master, the student like his teacher. He considered it an honor to live as Christ lived, which included suffering. And we have God's promise that we'll share in Christ's triumphs and glory And to be fully conformed to his image, we also share in his sufferings. And that's how we resemble, in some dim way, Christ. You know, there are many, many who are willing to reign with him and to wear the crown of glory. But there are very few indeed who are willing to suffer with him and to wear the crown of thorns. Balaam, remember him? False prophet that he was? This is what Balaam said. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. So we commend Balaam's choice, don't we? Since the death of the upright is simply the portal to heaven. The Christian doesn't need to fear the grave because Jesus took away its victory. Death has lost its sting, and the grim reaper need not frighten the believer. He died in our place. We can die with a clear conscience. I was talking to Alan the other day. Courage. Clear conscience. Ready to go. But sad that he has to leave behind his loved ones. That's it. For the sinner, earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes... Terrifying. He loses everything. Physical death is just the beginning of his eternal misery. By contrast, the Christian doesn't lose by death. Paul says explicitly to die is gain. 
And so Balaam wished to die as a believer dies, but he would not live as a believer lives. That's the crux. And part of our Christ-likeness is becoming more like him in our sufferings. We endure what providence brings because we realize its advantage. And God is able to overrule every evil for good and every affliction to sanctify the soul. Paul says, I know it's getting late, but let me just say one more thing. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Isn't that incredible? Paul, what, is he crazy? He considers it an honor to suffer for Christ. So it's granted to Christians not only to believe, that's a gift given to you, but it's also granted to you to suffer. And that demonstrates conformity to Jesus. Fellowship in his sufferings. Can you imagine our heavenly conversations around that celestial campfire as we recount the ways in which we followed and imitated Christ? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as a wise and heavenly father, you never cease to love your children. And part of that means that you are unwavering in your aim to make us more holy and Christ-like. And to do that, you bring hardship and affliction. And for that, we give you thanks. Help us to sing your praises now with hearts, with sincere joy. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.